Wrestling with Theology is a weekly Bible study that seeks to equip you to wrestle with the theologies that surround us in our everyday life. Through these studies, your faith in Christ will be strengthened through the Scriptures and the Lutheran Confessions. Join Pastor Minton for these next few minutes as he helps you get ready to wrestle with theology. right it is time once again for wrestling with theology i am pastor doug minton here to help you dig deeper into the book of exodus especially today as we look at the altar of burnt offerings the basin used for cleansing and then the consecration of the priest i was going to handle these all in different segments but i figured if we're going to do the altar of burnt offering which was the central focal point of Israelite worship, we might as well go ahead and talk about the priests who were there and what makes them so special. So having gone through the tabernacle interior and then the frame, we're going to look at what's right outside the tabernacle, which is the bronze basin. So we look at Exodus chapter 30, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze, with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar or to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water, so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet, so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. So the bronze basin with its bronze stand was placed outside the tent of meeting, between the tent of meeting and the altar burnt offering. And the priest must wash before entering the tabernacle, before going up to the altar to offer a sacrifice. Because you can't only enter God's presence through the washing of baptism. We won't get into the whole thing of what about exceptions because this is the general statement. If you go and deny and denounce the need for baptism, then, well, I really have issues with whether or not you will be able to then enter into the gates of heaven because you have refused God's gift to you. We also have from chapter 38, when it's made, that it's made from mirrors. So that the basin goes from fo focusing on ourselves, which we look at in mirrors, to focusing on God. That the mirrors are melted down to make this basin. Now, why they have bronze mirrors? That's a good question for me, but that is the way the ESV translates the word there. So we go from the tent of meeting to the bronze basin. Now we get to, as I said, the central focal point of Israelite worship through all of the Old Testament and even in the Gospels 
and up to the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the altar of burnt offerings. God describes it in chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. You shall make the altar of acacia with five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar, so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles that are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. So you have your five foot, or your five cubit by five cubit by three cubit altar here, which basically God describes as an acacia wood overlaid with bronze barbecue pit. Because you have everything made hollow so it's easy to carry. But then you have the grating that goes halfway down where the altar or the sacrifices are put on the altar. Where all the atonement is being made for the people. Right in the midst of the fire. And so you have all of the utensils and pots and everything for the altar, which I've always said in Bible classes, that that seemed to be, to me, the worst of the jobs in the tabernacle, was to have to collect the ashes and to clean off all the blood and everything that came about. But somebody had to do it. And this is where everything happened. You want, you want to talk about the sacrifices of the first seven uh, chapters of Leviticus? That is where it, most of them happen. Is that they are right there on the altar burnt offering. So that the smoke goes up to the heavens. You become a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And that, some scholars say that point not only is the center focus of the worship itself, but that was actually the midpoint of the actual camp of the Israelites. Others say it was the tent of meeting that was the center point. Potato, potato, really. I mean, there's no real difference because everybody agrees that the tabernacle itself was the central focus of the entire encampment in the Old Testament for the wandering in the wilderness, for the... Uh, For the days before the temple was built, it was a central focus, even when that central focus was far down in the south, in the city of Jerusalem. So now we're going to look at the priest, the priestly garments, and the consecration of the priest. And we're not going to read it all because that takes up most of chapter 28, 29, 30, and 31. We're just going to hit the highlights here. And for that, we're going to start off with chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. 
and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priest. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And then it goes on for the rest of chapter 28 to talk about the individual things about each of the garments, which we'll go through rather quickly. These are holy garments. This is why Catholic, Anglican, Episcopal, Orthodox, Lutherans, all of these liturgical churches still have the vestments, still have garments that primarily only the priest or the pastor wears. In some places you have the, the uh, worship assistants who help in the chancel, whether it's helping with uh, helping with distributing communion or with the bringing the candles or the cross in and procession, all these things, and they're in simple robes like the albs that the pastor wears many times. But then you have the special things like the cassock, which is the black robe that was basically in the uh, medieval days and before the basic work clothes of the pastor. He wore the, he wore the cassock everywhere. And when he did service on days other than Sunday, he would put a surplus on, basically a white uh, circle around his neck that dripped down over his body to then do matins, vespers, whatever service they were doing on those weekdays. The alb was restricted to Sundays and the celebrations of the divine service, which then also had the chasuble, which is the large really heavy garment that goes over, usually very ornate. But the high priest had similar garments. So we talk about the breastpiece of judgment. It was a span by a span, so roughly the width of your hand from the tip of your finger to the tip of your pinky when it is fully stretched out. That was a span, and it was doubled over. So it made a pocket inside of it. But in that breastpiece, you had four rows of stones, three in each row, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, each of their names put on there in gold filigree with the gold around it to hold it into the breastpiece. And then, like I said, it made a pocket. So the Urim and the Thummim, the Bible really doesn't say what these two things are, but they were inside. This is when like David would go and consult the Lord through the high priest, these are how this would happen. And there are many different speculations as to what they are because the Bible just calls them the Urim and the Thummim and mentions them maybe a handful of times and but does not give any descriptions to them. So there's nothing in Exodus or anywhere else where Moses is told how to construct these things. Then you have the ephod which had gold and then blue, purple, scarlet yarn, and fine twined linen. It had shoulder pieces to hold on onyx stones with 
six of the names of the tribes on each side. And these were so that he carried the people into the tabernacle with him. The same thing with the breastpiece. They were there. The breastpiece was placed over his heart so that then he had, they weighed on his heart as they were the reason why he was doing what he was doing. The onyx stones on the shoulders were because they were the burden he carried as their priest, as their representative to God. He carried them much like the man who found the lost lamb slung him over his shoulders to carry him home. You have the robe, which is very much like the cassock, which was all blue, but it had pomegranates and bells on the hem of the garment. This was very important. This was how you knew the priest was okay. Because if you could hear him clinking around as he was in the tabernacle, as he was in the temple, because if he had gone through and done like the Day of Atonement wrong, God would strike him dead, and somebody would have to then go in and drag him out. Uh, some scholars say that they actually tied a rope around his waist when he went in to offer the blood offering to the mercy seat, so that in case the bell stopped, they could pull him out from outside. Which is probably a very practical idea. Then you have a checkered coat that went over top of it all of fine linen. And then the one thing that really you only see from the archbishops and cardinals on up to the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, I've seen maybe a couple of the patriarchs from the Eastern Orthodox churches have the called mitres, which are the hats on top of the head, which goes back to the turban that the high priest wore, which had a crown around it. Engraved on the crown was the phrase, Holy to the Lord. That not only were you just, did he have the weight of the people on him, but now on top of his head, he had the weight of what his actual role as the intercessor for the people before a holy God was. And that was to remind him that his thoughts were to be holy. And then you had the sash of needlework that was put over top of it. And for his sons, the priests who were not the high priest yet, but were in line for him, you had coats, sashes, and caps that were made for them as well. And if you want to look further at those, those are all throughout Exodus chapter 28. As we move into chapter 29, we have the consecration of the priest, the ordination of Aaron as the high priest and his line being designated as the line for the high priest. And again, there's a lot of talk with the uh, sacrifices that were there that had to be made to consecrate him as not only a priest, but also a high priest that then would go on for his son Eleazar when he became high priest after Aaron's death and so on down the line until we get down to the last of the Aaronic priest before the captivity into Babylon.
But one of the things here is you have the anointing oil that then comes at the end of chapter 30. He is anointed by this on his right ear, his right thumb, and his right big toe. Reason for this is because God said so. Uh, right side is often considered side of power. The other side of it is many people have suggested that since Hebrew is read and written from right to left, that the majority of the Israelites, as part of being set apart by God, instead of being right-handed, were left-handed. So that Moses, as he is doing this, that is the logical side for him to do it, because he's doing it with his left hand as Aaron is facing him. But this anointing oil was very important. We look at it from chapter 30 of Exodus, beginning with verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is, 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And ye shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all its utensils, and the lampstand, and all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, with all its utensils, and the basin, and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And ye shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of any ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. So this was a specific recipe that was set aside for this one particular task of anointing. And I have made this blend before. Uh, one of the great things about not being under the Mosaic Law anymore with all of its ritual is that, yes, this denunciation of anyone who makes a blend like this is not going to be put to death. But many uh, who listen to me may know that my family is an essential oil family. And we use Young Living Oils. And they have an oil blend called Exodus 2 that is very similar to this. They have a few other things in there. But I have also taken the myrrh and the cassia and the cinnamon bark and tried to figure out an aromatic cane because that's kind of an interesting question as to what that actually is. Because some of these spices, we can't, we don't actually know what they are anymore because nobody uses them, I guess. Uh, so I've, I've actually used those to have in my diffuser or to just have as a, in a rollerball to put on to then help me to calm and to focus and to ground myself so that I can face a day of ministering, especially in those days that are particularly hard. And we've had many of those recently. And so, it is a wonderful smelling blend, especially once you get the cinnamon bark and the cassia and the myrrh together in that composition. It has a wonderful smell. So, I can understand why God would have this denunciation that you cannot have anything like this. Uh, the end of chapter 30, I believe we talked about with the altar of incense, 
has the same caveat on the incense that is used to burn in the altar of incense. I've also put that together as well to have as a diffuser blend in my office to have one of those great, wonderful days of being able to say, okay, I have been productive in getting ready for my ministry, particularly on Sundays. So this is the central focus and what happens with the priest, why they are set apart. And, well, how, not why. Because the why is God said Aaron will be the priest. And as you go through the book of Numbers, you see the couple of rebellions against Aaron and his priesthood that other people wanted to be priest, whether it was a particular person wanting his family to have it, or whether it was, well, everybody's a minister. Everybody's a priest. Well, that does come to pass in the New Testament through our baptism into Christ. He has made us priests and kings, but God places particular people in particular places to do his ministry. And all of this is done through his gracious, mysterious will. And I say this, and I'm looking at all of this and getting ready for this podcast as one who is now right at 18 months since I was last the pastor at a congregation. Still waiting for God's mysterious movement in the church to bring about my next parish, my next congregation, where I will be able to serve them exclusively as their pastor. But again, it is that waiting because God does have particular people. He has plans for in particular places. And they don't always work out in the timeline that we would like. But we keep going with what he has given us. Learning, as Paul said to the Philippians, to be content in every situation. Not happy, not overjoyed, but content that what you need is taken care of. Maybe what you want, you have to go without. But then again, that's what we teach our children, right? That we can't have everything that we want. We look to have everything that we need. And that's what God provides for us as a basis, is that to provide for everything that we need. And it is our job as human beings, as faithful followers of Christ, to be content with what God has put in front of us. It may not be the greatest thing that we want to do. It might not be the most glorious thing, but it is what God has given us. Because I, as I said, the guy who had to shovel out the ashes, the guy who had to clean up all the blood from the sacrifices, I'm sure he didn't like that job most days. But that was his job that he was given by God. And he was content with it. Especially if he were faithful in his job. And did it without the grumbling that many of us like to do. But I'm starting to ramble here and... It has gone past time where I need to shut up and let you move on to the next thing that you're going to listen to. But, as we have dug deeper into the central focus, as people would normally see it from the lay perspective, I hope that this has given you a 
glimpse into what it actually means. And I encourage you to read chapters 28 and 29 of the book of Exodus and to see what all had to be done, what all special things are there for the priests that God has set aside to serve in his congregations. But until next time, next week is Pro Wrestling America. Uh, the following week, we go back into the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, looking at Article chapter, Article 2 on Original Sin. We'll begin our study of that wonderful document as Melanchthon goes, okay, yes, you understand it, but you really don't. But that's in a couple of weeks, so I encourage you to listen to that. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments about what you have heard on Wrestling With Theology, send an email to wrestlingwiththeology at gmail.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure you have subscribed so it will show up automatically on your podcast app. Please also share the podcast so that more may be equipped for Wrestle With Theology.